How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Warriors, mages, healers, rangers, paladins, summoners, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Um, you get more and more creative every week. That was terrific. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you. So where are you right now, Tom? What you doing? So right now I am calling from Kingston, Massachusetts. Uh, I have been very recently cast as older Patrick Dennis in True Repertory Theater's production of Auntie Mame. It, I did not expect this to happen. It was a very quick decision to reach out to me and I auditioned and they said, hey, welcome aboard. And I said, hey, okay. It's, so it's great. I'm already looking forward to it. I did not know much about the play or really anything about the play going in. But uh, yeah, this is going to be fun. It is. And, and and when are the performances so we can all put it in our book? Yeah, the, our opening day is May 13th. And we go that weekend and then the next weekend ending on the 22nd. Okay. Get us some tickets. We're going to be there. Can't wait. So yeah, so there's a whole world of theater and there's so much spirituality that goes into theater, being able to to unlock your hidden soul and person to, to bring it into the stage. But I wonder whether uh, you could introduce our guest for tonight, Tom. Oh, it's like it's my calling, Dr. Joe. <laughs> he is an award-winning author of over 36 books on religion and spirituality. He received rabbinical ordination from the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion and holds a PhD in religion from Union Graduate School a rabbinic chaplain with the U.S. Air Force for three years, a congregational rabbi for 20, and a professor of religious studies for 10. He currently co-directs the One River Foundation. Shalom to the Dr. Joe Show, Rabbi Rami Shapiro. Thank you very much, Tom. Congratulations on the part. Oh, thank you. They, they don't give you a lot of time to learn your lines, do they? Not really, but, you know, I like a challenge. <laughs> okay. Well, you have it. Rabbi, welcome. Welcome to Dr. Joshua. I'm so, so delighted that you're here for us to chat tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Joe, for having me. I am delighted. So I just want to start right off, if one might, with the first quote from your website, which is, I think, powerful. Religions are like languages. No language is true or false. All languages are of human origin. Each language reflects and shapes the civilization that speaks it. Tell me more about that. Where, where did this idea come from? That just came out of my butt. <laughs> which one? Just, which butt or which idea? No, I just came up with that. It seems to me that it's true. Uh, and, you know, I do my best to be as succinct as possible when I'm writing these things. Uh, but, I, but I think religion is invented. Uh, I think, you know, spirituality is the process of uh, moving from the egoic self to the, the larger self, lower S, lowercase s self to the uppercase s self. Uh, but religion is an institution, an organization, and has, it reflects all the biases 
uh, of a culture or the people, the biases of the people who create the religion and then feeds those biases into the culture itself. You always have to be careful with religion because it claims to be the exact opposite of what it is. When it claims to be God's word, it's just the word most likely of some old men uh, who are you know, speaking like the Wizard of Oz through a megaphone, you know? Um, so the, the job of spirituality, I would think, is to pull the curtain back, like Toto in the Wizard of Oz, to pull the curtain back on the great and terrible wizard and discover these, these men just uh, with, with enhanced voice technology to give them the sense that they are all powerful and almighty. And yet there's such an appeal to, to people to have a religion, well, spirituality aside for right now, but there is that appeal, one religion after the other. Where does that come from, do you think? Well, I think you can look at it from a couple of different ways. And one is, I guess, the need to belong. I mean, religion is certainly a powerful way to belong. The other, I would I say there's three. One is belonging. The other is uh, it gives you the answers to, I was going to say questions that everybody has, but in a sense, religion each religion answers questions that it invents for itself. You know, like, you know, uh, is Jesus really the son of God? Well, Buddhists don't have that question. Only Christians have that question. So, so a religion will invent the questions to which it has, you know, the answers. So, but people are looking for answers. No one likes to live in the question. They like to live with something concrete, something certain. And then the third thing is um, lots of us, lots of humans, like to follow the strong man, and I mean man, literally. And either that man is clergy, and I know we have women clergy, but the system itself, I think, is patriarchal, even if women are now, in some cases, allowed to, to participate. They don't participate necessarily as women. They participate as <clears throat> females playing you know, in, in a male, like, male like role in a male being women, you would say. Sorry? Yeah, despite, right, yeah. right. Uh, but a lot of people just like having the big father God, big, you know, and with his big daddy um, uh, clergy, you know, to tell them what to do. Because I don't have to worry. God will take care of me. Um, my priest, my rabbi, my imam, my swami has the answers. So I can relax. Yeah. I remember, the, I can't remember who came up with the phrase, but there was one. Trust in Allah, but tie up your camel. Yeah, right. That's a classic, um, I would say, a classic humanistic, icon iconoclastic uh, Muslim saying. But, but it's right, right? I mean, trust in Allah, but don't, don't be an idiot. You know, it doesn't, I mean, I, I, on my, I, I live in Tennessee, and we just got new license plates for our automobiles, and you had a choice. Uh, do you want one that says, in God we trust, or do you want one that, uh, doesn't say in God we trust, it just doesn't say anything. And I opted for the in God we trust one. Just, I don't know why. It was just the, <laughs> the God I believe in is not the God. Well, I don't believe in God. The God I experience is not the God that my neighbors talk about. And so when they see on my, my license plate in God we trust, they're assuming it's Jesus or some other big daddy God. Uh, I trust God. God to me is reality. I trust that there's reality. I also trust that reality is wild. You know, the opening line in Genesis tells you that creation 
that, that, that reality, even before creation, is what the Bible calls tohu vavohu, wild, chaotic, unformed, untamable. And then when God in the story, because I think these are stories, not histories, but in the story, when God creates the universe, God never gets rid of the chaos. You know, there are other creation stories where chaos is a dragon and the hero kills the dragon and out of the carcass makes an ordered universe. In Genesis, God just lays a, a, a linguistic veneer. You know, God says, let there be light and there's light. It's all done with language and it's all a veneer over the tohu vavohu, over the, the pre-existing, always existing chaos. And that chaos is constantly breaking through. So religion gives us a cover. It's like, okay, it, it, it broke through, but really it's all right because you believe the right way or you know, whatever it is. Uh, it's all a defense against reality. So many things to, to go with there. Um, I'm going to come back to the chaos because I think that that has a very limbic component to it because we are these, these animals who have this primitive part and now this more prefrontal cortical thinking about the future part. But you said you don't believe in God, you experience God. Yeah. That's, that. I need to know more about that. Let me hear okay. more about that. So I'll tell you why I don't use, I try not to use the word belief. Obviously I fall into it once in a while. Uh, belief to me is simply an affirmation of something you cannot prove. Mm. So, I mean, I have a sister, she lives in Massachusetts, not too far from where you are. And I don't, I never say, well, I believe I have a sister. I know I have a sister. I can call her up. I can talk to her. So I would say, you know, I, I experience having a sister. When someone says, you know, the Jews are the chosen people, there's no way to prove that. That's just someone's affirmation. And you either believe it or you don't, but you can't prove or disprove it. So it's, it, it, it doesn't hold a lot of weight in my mind, the notion of belief. Um, so my, my experience of God depends on, of course, on my definition of God. And my definition of God comes from uh, my reading of the Hebrew Bible, usually through mystical texts. But in, when God reveals the nature of divinity to Moses in the story of the burning bush, the first word that God reveals to Moses is the Hebrew word ehia, which most English Bibles translate as I am, which is not exactly right. I am is static. Ehia is a verb. It's not a noun or even a pronoun. Ehia is a verb. It's the first person singular form of the verb to be or to happen. So uh, it's, it's, you know, it's like, there's no English for it. So it's like eyeing. That, that what's revealed in that story is God is the eyeing of the universe. Everything is, you know, a, a, a manifesting of, of God. The second name that God gives uh, in, in uh, Exodus is uh, the unpronounceable YHVH, yod heh vav -Hey, which is the same verb. Bibles translated as Lord, but that's a masculine hierarchical noun. The yod heh vav -Hey, YHVH, is a verb. And it's another form, third person singular form of the same verb to, to be, to happen. So the way I understand God and the way I experience God or the reason I use the word experience is when I'm looking out at the world, 
or I'm looking in at myself, whatever I'm seeing is this YHVH, is the happening of God. The seer is the ehia. I don't know if that makes sense. But the seer cannot be seen. The observer cannot be observed. Just like your eye can't see itself and your nose can't smell itself and your ears can't hear themselves. You can't, the, the seer cannot be seen because it's always the eternal subject. It's never an object. So my experience is through meditation and, and things like that, is that everything I see is the divine happening. And the one who sees it, the eye behind Rami is also the, you know, it's God looking at God. So for me, that's an experience, not a belief. Off air, we were, we were talking a bit about maybe some of the evolution also of religion and um, the idea that, that as human beings evolved and our brains moved from the limbic system, this primitive, impulsive, irrational part of our brain into the prefrontal cortex, being able to solve problems, execute a plan and anticipate what will happen next that the unforeseen consequence of anticipating what will happen next is we understand our mortality. And I just was asking Rabbi Alper, how, how might that concept, that human concept of mortality influence the evolution of, of God, a God-like figure of, of a religion? I don't know. I, I mean, it certainly influences religion. Whether it influences theological constructs, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. But, I mean, one of the big things that religion offers people is a way out of dying or a way out of death. Every religion promises you eternal life, either in another dimension or another, you know, like in heaven or in hell or reincarnation back on this planet. Uh, all of that is simply a way to keep the, the egoic mind that's, you know, fantasizing, projecting uh, its own mortality in the future from having to take it too seriously. Sure, I will die, but I will transition to another dimension as I'm still going, right? I'm, it's still me, whatever me is, right? I mean, I, I, I'm always fascinated with people who, um, and, and you haven't said anything, but I'm going to bring it up only because I think it's apropos to just sort of set some limits. I mean, Tom uh, recently lost, you know, lost. His mom recently died. This is Larry. Larry, Larry excuse me, Larry. Larry. Yeah. So yeah. Larry's mother recently died. So what I'm going to say, Larry, just take it with a grain of salt if it doesn't fit your own understanding. But, you know, there, there are religions who say, okay, so you die and you go to, let's say, heaven, and then you will be with, like my mom is 93, she's going to die sooner rather than later. She thinks she's going to be with my dad, uh, which is very comforting to her. But the question is, is she going to be with my dad as he was at 89 on all kinds of tubes? Is he, she going to be with him in, in the prime of life? Um, does he grow after death? Is he in heaven? And there's like some evolution of his consciousness. Will he know her? Will she recognize? I mean, all these, what we want is what we've got. We just want it outside a mortal frame. And 
that's a great gift of religion, but I would say it's completely false. I, I, think, I think what happens, I think you have to know who you are and who I think, you know, I think I am, who I experience myself to be, is this eyeing that we were talking about. So I, the analogy of the ocean and the wave, the universe or, the, or God, if you like, is this infinite ocean with, you know, near infinite numbers of waves. And I'm one of them. All of us are one of them. When I die, what happens to me is what happens to a wave. It just gets subsumed back into the ocean. But it, it doesn't keep waving. It doesn't wave in another dimension. It's just back to the ocean. And the ocean continues to wave, but it never makes the same wave twice. So I'm not into reincarnation either. I'm into recycling. So the wave that was Rami gets you know, brought back into the ocean, and then the divine waves continues to wave. But religion says, you know, it looks like you die, but you don't. Yeah, it looks like you die because you do. It's an end of that egoic self. And thank God, if you don't mind that phrase, because living forever would be a horror. Could, could, you, could you just talk about egoic? Because I, I, some of our listeners may not know what egoic means. Oh, so what I have in mind is, is the self that I call myself, you know, the self I think I am when I look in a mirror, right? Rami, the Rami that has a resume and the Rami that, you know, is, has his name on the cover of all these books and all of that. Uh, that psychological narrative that I call myself, that's going to die. And, and that's, that's a healthy thing that it dies, right? It doesn't, it, it, it's a necessary thing. It's just the way the universe functions. Um, but religion offers you an off-ramp, so it doesn't happen. Now, if you belong to the wrong religion, then their story would be, oh, you're going to go to hell. I mean, I, yeah. live, I live in a very red state with a very, I would call a toxic masculine Christianity, uh, where Jesus is more like John Wayne than, you know, a, a great Hebrew prophet. And many, many of my Christian neighbors believe not only that I, as a Jew, am going to hell, but those Presbyterians are going to hell and those Catholics are going to hell and those Muslims and those Orthodox Christians are going to hell. Anyone who isn't a member of their club is going to hell because one of the perks of joining their club is to get into heaven. And if you buy that story and you have to decide which club is, is right, of course you can't know until you die. But if you buy that story, joining that specific club is a, is a boon to you because now, okay, I belong to the Immortals Club. And I don't have to worry about death and, or the death of people I love as long as they're part of my club. Yes. I mean, religion is a weird thing, but, not, but understandable from a psychological perspective. Um, yeah, I was just going to say that there's so much focus on death. But, you know, I, 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 like most people, I've spent a lot of time in the shower and on the toilet and your mind just goes to these things. And I've <laughs> thought, well when we fall asleep and we don't dream, we wake up on the other side, like instantaneously. And when we die, if the consciousness is just pure brain and neurons and the, the manifestation of physical conditions, if we believe that the universe is effectively infinite or that you know the, the, the cycle of the universe is infinite, who's to say that those conditions won't repeat themselves? Yeah, right. I mean, you know, infinite number of monkeys, infinite number of time, they'll, they'll you know, come up with Hamlet. Um, sure. I mean, that's how you get Darwin's evolutionary theory in the first place. 
there's so many, you know, billions and billions of years that eventually blind nature will stumble on something that replicates and you end up with, you know, with humans eventually. Uh, so that's possible, but nobody cares about that. They care about themselves. You know, oh, sure. you know if, if I belong to a religion and they say, well, you know, given the infinite universe, all of your molecules will eventually become something else. You go, well, who the hell cares about that? I want to stay me mm. and, and just move to another dimension. Nobody wants to, I mean, even when the people say, well, my soul goes to heaven, but the soul is just a projection of the, the ego, the self, the personality. That's, that's the fun of going to heaven. You get to go there as you and have all these wonderful things, whatever they, they promise you. And that's the fun of believing in hell because no one believes in hell and says, well, I'm going to hell. Everyone who believes in hell says, I'm going to heaven. You're going to hell. And the fun of believing in hell is knowing that you, as you, that personality that I don't like, you're going to suffer in hell for all eternity. That's, that's the, I mean, it, it, you know, it's like the reptilian brain. I don't know, Dr. Joe, what, what kind of the brain we're talking, what aspect of the brain we're talking about, but it's just primitive and, but it, but it's operative. And so people buy into it. Yeah. It's, Not it's everybody. Almost, but. It's like, it's like Schadenfreude on, on steroids. Yeah, you know, right, where, right. Right. I wanted to ask you, Rabbi, how did you get started with this journey? Yeah, so it's it's a fairly simple story, I guess. I mean, I was born into an Orthodox Jewish home. Uh, I didn't learn any of this stuff, you know, growing up. The Judaism I was taught, even at a at a younger age, like by the time I was into high school, I knew I couldn't grow into this Judaism. I was growing out of it. And in my junior year of high school, two of my teachers went to India for a, they were on some kind of grant and they came back and they created a class called Asian Civilization. And it was a study of Hinduism, Buddhism, and Taoism. I loved these guys as teachers. I took the class and it just transformed my way of looking at the world. And I, for some reason of the three, uh, I, I gravitated toward Buddhism and toward Zen Buddhism in particular and started reading avidly about not only the theory of Zen, but the practice, you know, how to do the Zen meditation, Zazen. You can't get it from a book, but that's all I had. And the summer between my junior and senior year, I was in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, uh, spending some time with a friend. He worked at the post office, so he was gone during the day and I had a lot of free time and I was practicing my meditation. And I'm sitting on the shore of one of the lakes, I guess, and doing what I read in the book that you're supposed to do. And I don't know what happened because I wasn't there when it happened, but I can reconstruct something of it. At some point, Rami was gone. There, there was no sense of self. There was no sense of the environment. There was just, it was just gone. I don't know how long it lasted, but when I came back, I felt... I guess I felt this, this amazing love for and love from the entire universe. I mean, that's how, that's how I experienced it. And to me, that validated what I was reading in Zen. That, that, me, that to me said, yeah, it's all one thing. 
And if I can just get myself out of the way, in this case, through Zen practice, my ego will drop away and the greater reality will simply be manifest. Uh, so that was my first experience with that. I've had multiple experiences with that state, not always with a complete elimination of self. So a few years ago, because I, I studied in, in Buddhism and I studied in Hinduism, and I actually became uh, part of the Ramakrishna order of uh, Advaita Vedanta, and, and I have a teacher I have a Swami friend uh, who was my original teacher. And, and then I have this fella in his 80s who is not an official teacher, but he was a student of the, the uh, 20th century guru who really captured my imagination, Ramana Maharshi. So I started working with this guy and I was at his house. He doesn't have a school. You just, when you're in his neighborhood, you can call him up and see if he's free. You can drop by and have tea and talk. So I was at his house. We're having a conversation about, I don't know what. And he asked me what I thought was a stupid question. And he asked me, what's your spiritual practice? But he knew my spiritual practice because he had taught me to do this, what Ramana called self-inquiry, where you simply, you know, you're having an experience and you ask yourself, so who... Who is on the radio at the moment? Who's talking? Who's listening? Who's looking at Dr. Joe? Who's, you know, all this stuff. And you realize that the you who is having this experience, there's a bigger you that is observing you having this experience. And it goes back ad infinitum. But eventually you come to this place where you realize there's just this ehia, this I that's having all of this experience. So I just said, well, you know what I do? I, I asked the question, you know, who am I? And he said, are you? Just like that. It doesn't, it's like a non sequitur. It makes no sense. But it, something snapped in my brain and Rami was gone. But not the same way when I was, six, when I was in, a junior in high school. Um, let's see if I can explain this. I had no concept of who I was, but the world around me didn't disappear. So I knew the, the, that there was my teacher Prasanna sitting on the couch, but I had no, uh, it's not like I didn't know who he was, but I had no concept of who he was. I saw a couch, but I didn't go couch. I, I don't know how to explain it. I was aware of everything and yet was free from labeling. Labeling, yeah, but I, I guess. And, and it lasted for a while. I didn't. I didn't know it was happening because I couldn't even label the experience. But when it was over and I came back, I again had this incredible sense of, in, in Hebrew, it's called mochin, the godlute, spacious mind. It's just, you know, wide open sense of awareness. And I asked him, I said, you know, what did you do? And he said, let's go to lunch. And he wouldn't talk about it. And that was it. So I've had a number of different kinds of, I don't like necessarily the word mystical, but a number of different kinds of experiences like this that confirmed to me, because of the story I tell myself about them, that this notion that we are all the happening of a single dynamic process is, is true. So if that's, I mean, that's just my given, that's my, my foundational notion. And I've had it 
since I was a teenager and I can't get rid of it. I don't try to get rid of it. I just sort of accept it as, well, that's what I think. Uh, and that seems to coincide with my experience. So when I went into Judaism as a form of study in graduate school and then rabbinical school, the Judaism I was interested in was only that kind of Judaism that brought me to that kind of awareness, if that makes sense. So I was drawn to the mystical, I was drawn to the Hasidic, but I wanted, I, I read, I interpreted all of Judaism as a, um, well, that's not really true, but let's put it this way. I interpreted as much of Judaism as I could as a methodology for having this kind of awakening. And those parts of Judaism, I couldn't reconcile. I just forgot about them. I dropped them. So the Judaism that I practice is one that's devoted to this kind of awakening and then the behaviors that, that flow from it. What was it that influenced you way back then in high school? Because you were reading there was, Yeah, that, I mean, what caused me to read those things or what no, caused no, me to no, take no. the class? I don't know. No, 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 you like the teachers, but, but what was the distinction? What separated what you were God. reading? God, oh yeah, 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 God. The God I was being taught in Sunday, not Sunday school, in Hebrew school, uh, was this old man in the sky who had 613 things I was supposed to do, you know, give or take, and, you know, cared about my diet and cared about my clothing and cared about who I married and, you know, all this kind of stuff and had no interest. Now, this is the way I was taught. It's not really true from the mystical Kabbalistic point of view, but who had absolutely no interest in me as a person, in me as a, you know, someone with, with larger consciousness kind of thing. So what attracted me was the notion, uh, the Buddhist notion that ultimately there's no separate self. I just knew that was true. And that uh, without this sense of separate self, compassion is what arises for all, all beings. And I thought, well, that's, that attracts me. Now, you can find exactly the same teachings in Judaism. It's just not in my synagogue. It's interesting. The, the, the word compassion is, is powerful. Is, is the, the I am approach, and it's so interesting that it's the I am, which is I am, this is me, I matter. Um, it is saying that we're always doing the best we can, that nothing is broken uh, because we spend so much time in our lives worrying that we should be doing better. And the I am is saying, you know, just let's look again at why we do what we do based on the influence of these four domains. And you take the words, look again, and you reverse them, again, look. Again, to repeat something, look like a spectator. Let's respect why people do what they do without that judgment. And it's the respect that leads to value, which is what everybody wants. Everybody wants to feel valued by somebody else. We've spent millennium increasing our value by decreasing somebody else's. Then we're astonished they do the same thing and we're astonished that we have wars and group mentality. But what the I am is saying at any and every moment, you can remind someone of their value. And whenever you remind someone of their value, you increase your own value. And that leads to trust. So is there a distinction between compassion and respect? What do you think? Well, I'm sure we could find one. I think in practical terms, probably not. But before we go into that, let's just go back for a second 
and good. and and talk about uh, the notion that nothing is is broken and that people are doing the best they can at any given moment. I think if you get nothing else out of, and I don't know the I am method, but that idea that everyone is doing the best, you know, he, she, they can is crucial. It doesn't mean that, I mean, you take someone like this guy uh, in New York who just shot up the subway, is you're going to say he's doing the best he can? My understanding is, yeah, given his situation, psychological, physiological, sociological, all the conditioning that makes him who he is at that moment leaves him with absolutely no option other than to shoot up the subway. Now, right. does that mean you don't put him in jail for the rest of his life? No, of course not. He's still that's responsible. Right. That's right. Exactly right. And that's, so, that's exactly what I am saying. Yeah, I, I'm so I'm 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 so delighted that 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 resonates. Hmm? It means a lot. But if you know, if people would accept, and, and this is your work, so you know better than I do. But if people would accept, not as an excuse, but to realize that they are always doing the best they can, and and then they realize that the best they can sucks. I mean, there is there judgment there. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Then the question is, well, what? To me, the question is, what is the conditioning that I am experiencing that leads me to do X, Y, or Z? Rather than change the behavior, which I probably can't do, I have to first change the conditioning or free myself from the conditioning. Absolutely. So the I am isn't saying you have to like your I am. You don't have to condone it. It's not a free ride because you're going to be held responsible because everything you do is a natural consequence. It doesn't even mean you're going to win and be successful. And for some people, success is when you love going to work and love going home. For some people, success is having food in the refrigerator. For some people, success is having a home to have a refrigerator. For some people, success is just waking up, being able to get through the day. But instead of judging yourself and others as lesson and broken, Let's look again at why we do what we do based on the influence of these four domains. Rabbi, you were talking about a fifth component of spirituality. Can you yeah. say more? So here's, you know, I'm just riffing off the I am approach, which is admittedly new to me, but the, the fifth dimension, um, besides being a music group, uh, is, is this dimension of the, the I consciousness that is bigger than the egoic I consciousness. So the Echia that I mentioned earlier, the eternal subject that is looking through the world, experiencing the world through, through us, through all, all beings. Um, and, and I think what's, what spiritual practice provides is a way to, I don't know if the word is glimpse or I don't know what the word is, but to experience to some extent this transpersonal I am. Um, so that, that's what I was thinking in terms of the fifth dimension. I just wonder whether, you know, as we talk about it, whether that is I am. Whether that is it, that all these four dimensions, when, they're, when they are experienced, what they result in is you being connected. No, well, I don't, I don't have a problem with that either, but I'm still pushing for a, a, a dimension that is, you know, what the Hindus call 
sat chit ananda, pure consciousness, pure being, pure bliss, that isn't in any way Dr. Joe or Rabbi Rami or, yeah. or anyone in particular. And that, and that there's only one of them, <laughs> this, mm. this uh, sat chit ananda character, I am in, in the sense I'm talking about it. There's only one I in the universe who manifests as infinite numbers of, of you know, I ams. Um, but on, on a, I don't know if the word is practical, but let's say on a practical scale, what, what you're talking about in the I am method is I think crucial to healing in this physical, emotional, family, social dimension. Because you know what you said, when, when you can recognize, uh, this is, I mean, I'm, <laughs> these references may not mean anything to your audience, but if there are age, you know, there was a, um, uh, oh, it's not Monty Python. It's, oh, I guess the name just went out of my head, but the album is called, We're All Bozos on This, on this Bus. Hmm. And uh, someone's gonna have to look it up now and, and tell me who, the, who the, the, the comedy team was. Larry, could you do that, please? We're all bozos on this bus. We, we yeah, got look, on, yeah, look that up. And the idea is we are all bozos on this bus. We, we you know, some of us think, you know, we're driving the bus. Some of us think we're, you know, we should, we're important travelers. Some believe we're not important, but it, we're really all the same. Everyone is just conditioned in different ways, but no one is free of their conditioning. Though I think spirituality holds out a promise of actually transcending your conditioning, but then you can't be you at that point. You're just this, this I am. Uh, the advantage of the spiritual experience, putting it into the I am context, is that it allows me to observe the entire thing and not be attached to it. And that could be a liberating experience. So when I know, I mean, I can, I can, I won't give specifics, but I can think back on my childhood and notice the biases that my father in particular instilled in me. And their, their, his prejudices that were passed on to me as absolute truths, I now see them as prejudices because I can stand back from them and say, whoa, that makes no sense. I think there's a dimension of consciousness that stands back from all of it and can say, wait, I'm bigger than that. But as I'm moving in that direction, just knowing that we're all bozos on this bus, you know, you said nothing's bro broken. You could say, well, we're all broken. Uh, either way, it works for me. But it just, it's a, it's a liberating notion because now I don't have to fix anything. Right. And I think that's, you know, you can tell me what you think, but I don't think it's about fixing ourselves. It's about understanding where we're trapped, stepping out of the trap, and then the fixing happens, if, if fixing is the right word at that point, all by itself. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think as we, uh, if we continue to see ourselves as broken, uh, Fireside Theater. Yes, there it is. Fireside, fireside Theater. Thank you, Larry. Thank you. Um, so the, I, it was really interesting. I, I, I was talking with some folks from another religion about this, and they completely rejected it because they said we have to be broken in order to be redeemed uh we have to be broken or else there's no savior who's and and, and that's i mean that's maybe another another discussion well well, well i think it's worth taking a quick look okay. at that great great because 
in a sense, they're, they're right, but not maybe the way they think they're right. So I cling to my uh, conditioning as if it, was, it wasn't conditioning. I mean, it's just me. And that has to be shattered. That has to be, this sounds like a Christian person, that has to be crucified. What, what, I, what I love about Christianity is the Jesus story of crucifixion and resurrection. In the original gospel of Mark, in the original gospel, which is Mark, Mark even though it's pick up a Bible, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark is the first gospel to be written. In that gospel, Jesus says only one thing while he's hanging on the cross. And he says, uh, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And my way of reading it, it's like Jesus had this, he had still was clinging to one conditioned notion that God was going to save him. And then he goes, you've, you've forsaken me. And then he dies. That, you know, he was liberated through crucifixion from the last thing to which he was clinging. And then he gets resurrected. We're all clinging to our conditioning. Uh, if we can be freed from that, and that's usually a it depends, I guess, but, but often a harrowing experience of shattering of crucifixion. Resurrection is what happens. We are liberated from that, that conditioning. I, I just want to ask you this question because you're a psychiatrist. Um, I've been to a psychiatrist. I've had um, I don't, you know, prescriptions from psychiatrists to, to help a problem I was having because <clears throat> there was chemical imbalance going on and I took medicine for a while and it righted things and it, it was fine. The conditioning under which I was operating was caused by a chemical imbalance. It wasn't my fault. It wasn't something moral. It, it wasn't, had nothing to do with me other than I claim this body or this brain and the brain was having a problem. And all I had to do, and I'm not minimizing you know, the, the psychiatry and everything, but in my case, all I had to do was take a daily dose of whatever it was, I don't even remember, and do it for X number of months. And I didn't even notice the change, but my wife did. Yeah. Because I'm still clinging to whatever I'm clinging to, but, but my wife did. Uh, I found something very similar in 12-step program. I'm in uh, Overeaters Anonymous. I didn't think I had a problem. I just ate like an idiot. Um, but when I went to meetings and I listened to people tell their story about, you know, a broken kind of eating, and my response was, what are you talking about? That's what I do that. There's nothing wrong with you. That's nothing wrong with me. And then I realized, no, 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 this is not healthy. Never mind normal. Maybe there is no normal, but it's not healthy. Then I saw where I was being conditioned by food and just seeing it. There's much more to recovery than this, but just seeing it started the process of being free from it. Because I could say, ah, there's X, X makes me do Y. If I can, just knowing X triggers Y allowed me not to do Y, even though I didn't necessarily get rid of X. Then you work on you know, getting rid of the cause. So I, I know that part of the IM method is making these small changes. Yeah. And I think that's really crucial. You can't, I, I don't know if you remember Buckminster Fuller. Mm -hmm. Remember Bucky Fuller? So uh, he talked about trim tabbing. So Bucky Fuller was in, I think, the Merchant Marine, or but way back before we had hydraulic um, 
mechanisms on these ships. And to move a ship, you had to, you couldn't just turn the rudder and change the course of the ship. You had these little baby rudders on the big rudder and they were called trim tabs. And you could turn those. This is true of early aircraft as well. But you could turn the baby rudder and eventually that would shift the pressure and then the you could turn the big rudder and change the course of the ship. And he said, uh, his idea was to be a trim tab, you know, to make these small changes and, and change the direction of human evolution. So I Rabbi, think that me, we can do the same for ourselves. So that's what I'm going to ask you now. The IM does say that the ways are interconnected. Small changes can have a big effect. Don't need to change everything. What small change can you recommend to our listeners, given what we're talking about tonight? Well, I think the change depends on the individual. So I, I hesitate to say, oh, do X, and this is a change. But I would recommend, um, we'll call it a spiritual practice that I think allows you to, to observe the conditioning on the four dimensions, four uh, domains, dom yeah. domains that we're talking about, and then make further change. I think that the V with a capital T-H-E, the practice for our time is what the Hindus call mantra. Every religion has mantra practice, where you take a sacred word or phrase, doesn't matter what it is, but it has to resonate with you. And you repeat it over and over again uh, throughout the day. And now I've been doing mantra work for decades. What it does is it interrupts the conditioned um, patter of your self-talk. So I don't know how much time we have, but I can give we you- have, we, we have 30 seconds. We're gonna talk about this off air, but you control no one, you influence everyone, you get to choose. Rabbi, 30 seconds or less, what kind of influence do you wanna be on people? In Judaism, it's called being a blessing to all the families of the earth, human and otherwise, from Genesis 12, 3. That's what I want to be. I want to be a blessing by treating people with dignity and respect and helping them see the, the four dimensions and freeing themselves from them. Rabbi, you are absolutely a blessing. And I'm <laughs> you, blessed too. to have you here tonight. Thank you so much. Yeah. Folks, Dr. We'll Joe, thank you. See you next week. Thanks, Larry. Go, 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 go.